when people like this take 100 million plus people, which is how many white women we have in this country, and say, because of your skin color, I'm gonna ascribe negative characteristics to you. I think we have a word for that, right? I think it's called racism. Welcome to The Lost Debate, unconventional media for the rest of us. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Corey Bradford. Corey, we've got a lot to talk about today. I'm really excited about this one. Where are we going to start? We've got some fire stories today, Robbie. <laughs> Coming up today, the bad takes on blaming white women for why Democrats did so poorly in the Virginia's governor's race, how new mayors in Boston and New York City are causing a little bit of a stir. Robbie is going to give us a detailed breakdown of the debate behind wearing masks. And we'll talk about socialism, America's most confusing new pastime. But first things first here in our Lost and Found section, we're going to talk a little bit about this COP26 climate change summit taking place in Scotland. It's actually getting a whole lot of criticism, Ravi, because there are those who think that it really isn't leading to any real change when it comes to the climate debate in the world. Uh, we've seen some things on Twitter with people saying things such as, has there ever been a bigger waste of time, energy, and money than COP26? The biggest polluters aren't there. The pollution caused by thousands of people arriving by plane, car, and train, etc., is a lesson in true hypocrisy. And if I was a betting person, I bet nothing will be achieved. Ravi, when you see statements like this, is this a valid critique of these types of events where the whole world gets together and really nothing comes from it? Or is this the only way that change is going to come about with an issue as big as climate change? Well, I think if, if the argument is we should never do summits, that's one thing. But you would almost say if we're going to pollute to get together, we might as well pollute to talk about the most biggest existential crisis that we have. Mm -hmm. And I think although some of the numbers are jarring, like over a, the carbon footprint of this event is something the equivalent of like 11,000 plus cars emissions for an entire year. So that oh, is wow. a lot, but that would be obviously a drop in the bucket compared to whatever commitments would be made here if they were followed through on it. That's the piece that I'm concerned about is, are we actually committing to things that we're following through on? I understand the debate about the optics, but it's so secondary to me compared to, are we agreeing to things that matter and are we following through on them? I mean, the substance of the agreements is definitely important, but I think critiques like this are valid. If we're going to have a meeting about climate change and have a meeting about reducing our carbon footprint, then it's kind of pointless if we're going to add so much to the carbon footprint and not come away with concrete like ideas to actually put something in place. So I think this is a valid criticism. And this is not just a criticism that's coming from people on Twitter. I mean, there are worldwide leaders criticizing America's role in this. Uh, for instance, China had a lot to say about this because President Joe Biden actually attacked the heads of states of China because he basically said, you know, you guys didn't show up to this meeting. You're not even a part of this conversation and you guys are the biggest polluters. But then China kind of responded by saying, you know, us not being there in that capacity actually reduces the carbon footprint that you all are contributing to. And, you know, you've got Biden coming there in a private plane with a dozen car motorcade and sort of, you know, it's almost like, is this even balancing it out? Like if, right. if, if you're adding that much to the problem and you're not coming away with it with any concrete solutions, I mean, what's the point? Well, I think China's a bit disingenuous in this. I think it's unlikely that the reason why their head of state and Russia's head of state didn't come to this event was because of climate change. But I think, you know, there's an argument for these summits. I think that they've tried to talk about these issues over Zoom, but there's all sorts of issues with time zones and the energy that yeah. people are bringing to yeah. this you know there's also the benefit of bringing together countries that are more affected than others that don't have a lot of power like barbados for example with the powerful face-to-face -to, -face to say all right you i'm now able to confront you and try to push you to do more but 
you know, there are some valid criticisms. You know, China not being here is a big deal, but but also China not being part of some of the critical agreements is an even bigger deal. So the two big agreements that have come out so far of this meeting, number one is a, a serious cut to methane emissions, a yep. commitment to do that. Problem is China's not a part of that. They're the biggest methane emitters in the world. Russia's not a part of it. India's not a part of it. Australia's not a part of it. So that's problem number one. For sure. Problem number two is that we have, uh, there's a agreement to end deforestation by 2030 that was made. The problem with that is that there was already a commitment from 2014 to end deforestation by 2030, and we've actually increased deforestation since 2014. And so you have one commitment that's not a new commitment, and it's not being followed already. And then you have another, which is a new commitment, but doesn't include the, the world's largest emitters. That's where I'm very frustrated by this event. Yeah, an increase to deforestation and yet these lumber prices are so high. That's crazy. <laughs> but all of this for me gets to there's this international criticism of America that, you know, why even do deals with America when the second we get a new president, most of those deals are going to get ripped up anyway? I mean, because of the nature of our politics. I mean, look at what happened to the Iran nuclear deal. And then look at us, you know, leaving the uh, the Paris climate agreement. Now, granted, we're back in this agreement as well, but it still just seems really unbalanced, the criticism here. Yeah, I'm with you on the U.S. being a unreliable partner in these types of uh, agreements because our politics are so screwy. You know, you mentioned the Iran deal, there's Cuba. It's that's what I would be leading with, not how much you know how big Biden's motorcade is. But blame game aside, we need China to cut its emissions. We need India to cut its emissions for us to survive as a species. And this is where. The, you know, the young people out there, especially we talked the other day about how young people are frustrated with our politics. Yes. This is why I feel for them. It's like, you know, this issue is going to be seismic in our lifetime. Yeah. It's going to be existential for them. Absolutely. And that's why they're frustrated. And that's why they're chanting. I think they're chanting outside of some of these meetings. No more blah, blah, blah. Meaning like, let's stop talking. Let's start doing. I get it. But in order to do things, we need to talk. But I like the pressure they're putting on our leaders. I like the pressure they're putting on us because we owe them a planet that's habitable. Absolutely. Action is definitely necessary and hopefully some action will come from this. So another story that we're tracking here deals with the New York Fire Department. And apparently it's in relation to vaccine mandates. A few weeks ago, we did a show where we talked a little bit about vaccine mandates in relation to police officers. And now it seems like the New York Fire Department is also being adversely affected by this. What's really going on, Ravi? Yeah, right now we have a sick out here in New York City, which is... A sick out. Yeah, which means that we've got... 17% of firefighters right now haven't shown up for work and half of those people are unvaccinated. And, and essentially what's going on, we think, is that this is almost a protest against the vaccine mandate. And you have the fire chief in the city criticizing those firefighters for not showing up to work. But then you have the head of the firefighters union who's defending them saying, we've done nothing wrong. This is scary. Like this, this makes me want to reopen this debate around these vaccine mandates, because I think you and I are still not on the same page of these. I still think they're right, but it does scare me that we don't have enough firefighters on duty. Well, vaccine mandates in relation to police departments is a little different because the police have much more close contact with people on an average everyday basis. But when it comes to the fire department, I mean, like seriously, 
firefighters go into burning buildings every single day. The equipment that they have on, the mask that they have to wear to go into those buildings, is probably a lot more secure than the Kate Spade mask that we're wearing on subways to try to, you know, keep back a, a dangerous virus. <laughs> uh, and, and are you really going to ask if your firefighter is vaccinated when they're trying to save you from a burning building? I really don't think that's going to be the biggest concern in that particular scenario. I, I think that as long as you're hitting like, you know, 70 something, 80% vaccination rates, I don't think it's, in, I don't think it's in the best interest of the public to force that last little bit to be vaccinated if that's going to put us at risk when it comes to fire safety and things like that. Well, I think part of the problem is to even get to 70, 80 percent in some places, you need the mandate. And so the question is, is does it make sense to do the mandate and then stop the mandate? Because then the people who've complied, you know, from the 60 to 80 percent are going to be like, well, hey, what what are you yeah. doing? But also, I think part of it is it's not the theory goes this is not necessarily about public servants interacting with the public, or the, depending on your job, it could be that. But it's really about the government's ability to control overall vaccination rates. And public employees are the people who they can control the most. And people hate this. It's a debate about government control, but mm. the government sees it as, all right, these are our employees. We can ensure they're getting vaccinated. And that's the one thing that we can control. But the thing that gets me about this whole debate, Corey, is that this firefighters union uh, is essentially telling the city to F off and people on the left are going crazy about this, and they're going crazy as we showed with the John Oliver stuff about the police stuff. But nobody's asking the question about why municipal unions as a whole have this kind of power. It's because Democrats have fought for these ironclad contracts where the unions could do whatever they want. They don't have to show up to work. They retire when they're 27. It's an exaggeration, but you know what I'm saying. And uh, there's now seems to be this good union, bad union thing going on mm -hmm. where there are Republican unions and there are Democratic unions and the firefighters and the police, those are bad unions. So anything they do through their course of power of these contracts and collective bargaining they have, that's bad. But transit workers or teachers, those are good unions. So no matter what they do, they're fine. And I just find this, this double standard a bit jarring. Uh, it's very jarring indeed. And it's something that we'll just have to kind of keep an eye out on. All right, so now let's talk about the Virginia governor's race, right? And there's some really bad takes about this. Everybody's trying to figure out why did the Democrats lose this race? It was supposed to be a race that they should have easily been able to win. And they lost a state that's been trending blue for the last like decade or so. And there are some out there on Twitter in the Twitterverse that are actually blaming white women exclusively for this loss. Let's take a look at this one video we saw on Twitter. Dear white women, what the fuck is your purpose, huh? What the fuck is your purpose, huh? What the fuck is your purpose? Other than ruining the motherfucking casserole, what the fuck is your purpose other than voting against your better interests? What the fuck is your purpose? It seems like every year white women just keep getting worse. Aren't they getting worse? If you look at the electorate, white women continue to vote for Republicans. Every year it keeps going up. It keeps going up. So my question is, why the fuck should we trust a lily white hoe? I have a message for this guy, Corey, and everybody else who's thrown around this hashtag about white women over the past few days. And my message is, fuck you. And the reason why I say this is that I have a white mom. And she raised me and my brown brother and my brown sister. And she's a wonderful woman who's looked out for me my entire life and looks out for our entire community. She's a nurse by day who helps people and always has been in nursing homes and then teaches college at night and is super popular to all of her students. And then I have my grandmother, who's also a white woman, who when my dad left me, she let me live in her basement, right? And with all my brothers and sisters and my mom. And I've had teachers in my life who are white women who've looked out for me and have been wonderful. And so I think when people like this take 100 million plus people, which is how many white women we have in this country, and say, because of your skin color, I'm going to ascribe negative characteristics to you. I think we have a word for that, right? Yeah, uh, I think it's called racism. Um, and this is definitely 
a racist take or definitely a prejudice take. I mean, um, not all white women are bad. And it's crazy that I even have to say that, that that's even a statement I have to make. I mean, I have I have a white wife who also has a brown son and 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 works her ass off to take care of him every single day. And I think whenever you do this, whenever you take an entire group, all black this or all white that or all Hispanic this, I mean, that's just not right. That's just not right to 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 paint such a broad brush to group every single person in the group and say that they're all responsible. Plus, what the fuck is he talking about? White women can make good casseroles from time to time. I don't understand <laughs> this. this. This guy is just bitter. And all these Democrats are just so fucking bitter. Look, McAuliffe ran a terrible campaign. He sat there in a room full of Latino voters and said, you guys need to get busy and have more children so we can get our numbers up. That's all the Democrats seem to care about is how many groups can we convince to vote for us based off of their group alone and nothing else. Did he really say that? He literally said that. Wow. Well, so I, this is my feeling about this is that there's a CRT debate out there yeah. right now. That's and, a lot to do with this. And I've spent a lot of time debunking unfair takes that Republicans have had and disingenuous takes that they've had about CRT, basically where they invented certain instances where it happened. But where I think the broader debate is happening is that people view the Democratic Party as a party that's tolerant of people who talk like this, who talk about white women or talk about white people, and that basically say that white is a negative, and if you're white, you like you you know you need to be somebody who's in, ashamed of who you are, and that you're that there's inherently something wrong with you for that. And I think it's crazy. And obviously, there's a deeper, more nuanced conversation about privilege and all these kinds of things. But we've gotten so. Far afield from that, that the GOP looks at this and says, all right, keep making videos like that and we'll just keep crushing you at the ballot box. Yeah, I mean, conservative pundits all the time say disparaging remarks about black fathers, uh, about, you know, black people who live in poverty. And that's just as wrong as this this fucking video that we just saw. It's just you can never take an entire group and say you're all this or you're all responsible for that, because then when you look in the mirror and it comes the other way and you can't, you know, if 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 if, if you can't say that about another group, like if I couldn't say that about all of this and it, that would be considered racist, then how is that not considered racist? Right. And in, in the party as a whole, I think, deserves blame. Right. And I think it's not even just a McAuliffe thing. Right. Like he, he, he ran a bad campaign, but. Is I, for being honest, I was involved in the 2017 election. Not nobody who was involved in the party, for by and large, with few exceptions, was as animated and energized and investing as much resources and time. And so everybody just needs to look in the mirror and say, "How could you do better? How can we communicate better? How can we show more empathy for people, listen better, and you know, communicate a better vision for the country?" And perhaps that will com uh, convince people to vote for your side. Absolutely. It really just goes to this whole point about the Democratic Party having this obsession with race. I mean, look at what happened in Boston, right? So in the Boston mayor's race. And we begin with this breaking news. You are looking at the next mayor of Boston. Boston voters have spoken, and it is city councilor Michelle Wu who makes history becoming the next mayor. Michelle Wu won the race, 36 years old, Harvard Law School graduate, very accomplished. She's been on the Boston City Council uh, for many years now, I think since 2013. And she won this race, which is incredible. But all of the headlines about her were basically just saying first Asian woman 
to, um, to, to become mayor of Boston. Or some of them were even saying first woman of color to, to win this uh, race in Boston. And so, it just it, again, it's just the Democrats' obsession with reducing every single person to their skin color, every single person to their race. Well, I mean, I didn't even know that this woman was a Harvard graduate until I clicked on some of these articles, like the one from NPR. I had to click on and read the whole article before I knew what her real accomplishments were. Yeah, or her beliefs or her policies. Or, yeah, or even right? her policies. Now, granted, she's left of left. Like, she's a super progressive individual, even a little bit too progressive for my taste, but she's still a very accomplished woman, and I would have known nothing about that if I had just looked at these headlines alone. Yeah, and an experiment for our audience is to go to the DNC website and just click on, there's a section that says who we're for, mm -hmm. and what you'll get is not a you know Obama-esque distillation of what connects us all and what our common vision for humanity is. What you get is a list of subgroups. And this is the theme that we're seeing right now, is that the Democratic Party, when they see people, they see only your race uh, or your sexual orientation. They don't see anything more about you. And I think that's part of what people are picking up on. I think that's part of what happened in Virginia. Like we talked about critical race theory, right? And I've, I've done a lot to debunk some of the more narrow questions around critical race theory to say that, you know what, there's not a lot of like technical critical race theory being taught in Virginia schools. But I think what voters are picking up on is that Democrats are obsessed with seeing people through their race. And I think white voters uh, see a party that maybe not the majority, but a sizable amount of people within that coalition see white people as a negative and the party tolerates that. And I think you put that together with this and you say, all right, we need a different conversation about race in this in the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, look, the reality is racism and discrimination, especially against disadvantaged groups, is still a very big problem in this country. But it's going to be an even bigger problem when instead of actually looking at it specifically and saying, OK, we should get rid of this racist judge. Or we should get rid of this racist politician. Instead, we're just saying, oh, all white people are responsible for right. this racism instead of being more specific about it. And then also too, you know, NPR specifically had a tweet about Michelle Wu in which it labeled her as a person of color, which is interesting to me because that term person of color is a term that I personally don't really care for because, you know, I grew up in Alabama and, you know, my grandparents used to tell me about back in the day when all African-Americans referred to were referred to as colored. And that's now a super, you know, offensive term. If any sportscaster or famous celebrity got caught calling a black person colored, uh, they would get canceled faster than Joey. Do you know what Joey is? No. It's the spinoff from Friends. It got canceled so fast you don't even know what it is. That's how fast a famous person would get canceled if they called me or any other African-American colored. But I don't really see how that term is any different than the term person of color. And also the way the Democrat Party uses this term person of color, they pretty much use it to refer to any non-white person, right? Indian Americans are people of color, Arab Americans are people of color, Michelle Wu's a person of color, I'm a person of color, you're a person of color. Pretty much anybody, anybody who's not white is a person of color. And I feel like that really diminishes the diversity. I mean, the Democratic Party is always talking about diversity and inclusion and equality. Well, how can you really be about equality when you're taking all these different groups? I mean, think about the difference between a Mexican person's experience in America versus a Puerto Rican person's experience versus a Cuban person's experience versus a Brazilian person's experience. And you're just white, you're just broad brushing all of them and saying, you're all just people of color. It's right. just a politically convenient way for the left to categorize people. And if the right did that, if the right on their website said, we only apply to white women and white right. conservatives yeah. <laughs> and white Christians, then they will be called the biggest <laughs> racist in the room. Right. So, why, so how come we keep giving a pass to the Well, Democrats here's my prediction. That? I think that in uh, a couple of years, the term person of color will be offensive. It may even be today. I haven't been keeping track. Maybe we just made it offensive. But there are terms that are okay. The left has their own terms and they keep changing them. You have to keep keep up with them. And they're their own terms for dividing people by race. And those terms are okay. Every other term is bad. 
Well, let's move on to something that's actually some good news for once in our lifetimes. You know, uh, we've got a new mayor here in New York City, Eric Adams. And he, you know, ran a great campaign, very invigorated campaign, but he caught a little bit of controversy on the camp on election day night uh, for going out and kind of being out in crowds in New York City. And the way he responded to this criticism was just perfect, in my opinion. Let's take a look at the clip. Was this appropriate to have that event last night? <laughs> it's somewhat silly not to. We're trying to get our nightlife up and operating. I'm going to visit as many restaurants as possible. I'm going to visit all of the various places in our city. You know what a lot of people don't realize? New York City is 24-7. <laughs> I like this guy. <laughs> yeah, Corey, I know him decently well. Like before the pandemic, we used to have breakfast once a month. And this is before he was, you know, viewed as the, the top contender in the mayor's race. And, you know, this guy who's down here in lower Manhattan, who's the incoming city council member, is a guy named Chris Marte, used to come with us. And after the first time we met Eric Adams, we both looked at each other and we we're like, this guy may be the most interesting man in politics. You know, you're so used to meeting these people who are just platitude machines yeah. and they're so careful. What I like about this guy is that he's super authentically himself. We're talking about a vegan, former cop, who was somehow able to unite the black and brown neighborhoods of New York City with Staten Islanders, you know, where I grew yeah. up. And this gets to the conversation we're having before. This is a guy who obviously uh, doesn't ignore race. He's a black, you know, black former cop in New York City. Mm -hmm. he's, he was actually able to resonate with black and brown communities, but he's also somebody who's able to say, I can see beyond that and paint a vision for this city. And I'm, I'm really into it and I'm excited to see where he goes from here. Well, I like the vision part of it, but also finally a progressive with a backbone. I mean, he could have really weaseled his way out of that right. question. I think the average like progressive or Democrat, if they were asked that, they would have said something like, oh, no, we were all wearing masks or, oh, you know, we were all vaccinated and stuff like that. He didn't say that at all. Like he said, this is my job as mayor to go out, be with the people. And I like how, you know, further on in this video, he actually talks about like it's not just nightclubs and bars he's going to go to. He's going to go to, you know, see MTA workers after hours. He's going to go see healthcare workers after hours because New York City needs to get back up and running. And he's pushing that. So I think that that's incredible. And this is what not just the Democratic Party, but politicians in general have just been, like you said, so static lately. And you use the word platitude, like just just so boring. Right. And people are tired of that. That's the reason why. So that's the reason why Trump won. Right. Because people want someone who's going to be real and not talk to them like they're just puppets. Right. And Eric Adams is the future of politics in this country. Just be your authentic selves and just cut the bullshit out. Right. And you know, later in this, this interview as well, he talks about the fact that things just don't work in New York. And he, he expresses frustration and says that's going to be his number one priority as mayor is to say, how do we get the machinery of government moving again? And I think this is important for Democrats to listen to, because if Democrats are going to be the party of government, they need to focus more on making government work, not just expanding the size of it, but saying, can we make it work for the average person or for any person in America? And that gets right to the CRT thing. If the schools were great across this country, if people were saying, all right, the budgets of schools are going up and my kids' experience and their academic achievements going up, there wouldn't be a CRT debate in this country. But the reason why it resonates is because our schools are not nearly as good as what people pay for them. And people get frustrated by that. Awesome. Efficiency in government. I like it. Don't think I'll see it anytime soon. <laughs> Coming up, mask on or off? And we'll talk socialism, good or bad. We'll have more on that coming up. What, what, what's actually happening? What's actually happening? What? Masks. 
the most divisive piece of fabric since the Confederate flag. A lot of people hate masks, and I can't totally blame them. The CDC has been all over the place on this issue. If you remember February 2020, they were saying don't wear masks. They were actually tweeting in all caps, stop buying masks. And we all had the woke friend who was shaming anybody who would go out and buy masks saying that, that those masks are needed for the medical professionals. And then just a few months later, that woke friend and the CDC were saying you must wear masks. That's the only responsible thing to do. And then that was pretty much the orthodoxy for a while. Yes, the laws changed here and there, all the way up until May 2021, where because of vaccinations and because of waning COVID numbers, the CDC said, all right, you actually don't need to wear masks anymore, which we all breathed a sigh of relief. And then just a few months later, because of the Delta variant in July 2021, they were saying, actually, no, you do need to wear your mask in most places. And although I think some of these changes make a lot of sense and there are totally valid reasons for it, I understand why there's a ton of confusion and frustration here. And that brings us to this segment, what's actually happening, masks. Okay, so what's the theory behind these masks? Well. COVID is an airborne virus, which means that anytime you cough, you sneeze, you shout, you sing, you send droplets into the air, and those droplets will contain the virus if you're sick with the virus. And that means that other people will breathe it in if you've sent them out into the air, and that means that you'll breathe it in if other people have sent it out into the air. And if you wear a mask, you reduce the amount of droplets you send into the air, and you reduce the amount of droplets that you inhale. So they reduce transmission. So the big question is, should you always wear a mask to prevent COVID? And the answer is, it depends. You have to ask yourself a few questions. First, are you indoor or are you outdoor? If you're outdoor, you shouldn't really worry about wearing a mask unless you're shouting in somebody's face, because the data says that the vast, vast majority of cases are from indoor spread. And then there was a study even said that 0.1% of cases came from outdoor spread. So unless you live in a place like Oregon that inexplicably requires you to wear your mask outside, you don't need to worry about that. Now, if you're indoors, you need to ask yourself one of two questions. If you're indoors, you need to ask yourself a different question, which is, are you more concerned about your capacity to spread it to other people, or are you more concerned about getting it yourself? So if you're mostly concerned about your capacity to spread it to other people, which is my main concern, because I'm a relatively young, healthy person, then the question is, all right, how effective are masks? The answer is very effective. So uh, if you're wearing a surgical mask, there's a Yale-Stanford study that says that they're 95% effective at filtering out those droplets with the virus. And if you're wearing a cloth mask, it's 37% effective. So if you, if you can go out and get a surgical mask, you should get that and you should wear those in a lot of situations. And if you don't have any other alternative, wear the cloth mask because it still helps. And this is about protecting your grandmother. This is about protecting that clerk at that store that you see every single day. There are a lot of situations where because of the people that you're around in a given situation, you may want to protect them. Now, if you're a selfish person who is only concerned about your own health, and that's your only concern, then you may need more evidence. You may say, whatever, like, I just want to protect myself. In that case, masks are still effective. The data is variant on this, somewhere from 60 to 95% effective in preventing you from or reducing the risk of you breathing in those droplets, right? But there's so many factors here. How many people are in the room? How vaccinated are they? Do they have their masks on uh, the whole time? And do they have them on properly? And you can't control a lot of those factors. And so you have to you have to weigh all those risks and put them all together to say, in what situations do I feel like it is necessary to wear that mask and not wear that mask? Now, 
There are some common critiques of masks that I want to talk about. The number one concern I hear from people is that we have the kids in masks in schools, wearing them all day. They're not wearing them properly. The masks are getting soggy. They're cranky. And it's, you know, I've seen people even compare this to abusive children, right? So what's the deal with these masks with kids? There's not a ton of data to say how much more or less effective the masks are for kids. But one thing we know for sure is that education professionals are contracting COVID and they are dying. New York City, we lost already 91 New York City Department of Education employees to COVID, right? So the number one part of this debate is not necessarily just protecting those kids, but it's protecting those adults. And the data on kids right now doesn't suggest that we have this humongous problem of kids contracting COVID and dying from their exposure in school. To be clear, there are some kids who are getting COVID and dying in school, but there's not a lot of evidence that this is that much more of a problem than, for instance, the flu. So that means that we need to focus on these adults. And I have a proposal on this front. My sense is Given what's going on in schools and given as, an, as a former educator how hard I know it is to keep compliance for these masks in schools, that we should leave it up to the teachers to decide whether they want to enforce masks in their classroom. If you're young, you're healthy, you're unconcerned about COVID, the masks are really about you. And if, you're, if you say that you know my job is infinitely easier, if I'm able to say, all right, masks off, let's focus on the instruction, then let the teacher make that decision. And if the teacher is at a high risk category, then what happens is they get to opt into the mask requirement. And that means that the resources of the school and the energy of the kids and the frustration of parents can all be focused on those isolated incidents so we can make sure that those are effective circumstances and that we don't have kids wearing them in circumstances where they don't need to. Now, there are other critiques of masks that I want to talk about. Uh, one of them is that you know because you're wearing these masks all the time, they get soggy, they trap your germs. And I've looked into this and essentially the way the science goes here is if you're washing your mask regularly, like you would any other piece of clothing, you're fine. That's not going to be an issue. Another concern is that uh, because you're wearing a mask, you're trapping CO2 and you're not breathing in enough oxygen. But the studies I've read debunk this as well and say that your oxygen saturation in your blood level is unchanged if you're wearing a mask, even if you're exercising. Now, in conclusion, here's where I land. I think there are two extremes on this debate. There's one side of the debate, which is your friend who cannot give up their moral superiority for wearing the masks. They want to wear them in every circumstance. They want to wear them outside. They want to take pictures even when they're alone wearing the mask. That's wrong. That includes governments like Oregon that are requiring people to wear masks outside. That's crazy to me. Now, on the other side are people who are saying masks are ineffective and that there's some kind of tool of government oppression. I think that's wrong as well. I'm somewhere in the middle right now, and where I am is... You should try to comply with the CDC guidance because these are well-meaning professionals trying to do their best as frustrating as it is. But I know that I, nor most of you, are perfect in complying with the CDC. And so the way I think of it is we have a risk budget. And for me, that means that I'd like to budget out my risk so that I'm only spending my personal risk on, on things that are most important to me and that I don't put anybody around me at an unnecessary risk. So that means that if I'm on public transportation, if I'm interacting with surface, service employees who see a lot of customers, if I'm interacting with my grandmother or I'm visiting a nursing home, I'm wearing a mask in those circumstances. And of course, if I'm visiting a store where they require masks, I'm gonna wear a mask and I'm not gonna get angry about it because there are employees at that store who have to see a lot of people every single day and it's just the respectful thing to do just like taking your shoes off in somebody's house when they ask you to do it, that you should, you should put on your mask in those circumstances. And of course, wash those masks. And I think if we do all of that and we get less angry about it, 
and less sanctimonious about it, we'll all be in a better place on this issue. Well, Ravi, it doesn't seem to be the biggest inconvenience in the world to put a mask on. Uh, so I definitely agree with you when it comes to like visiting people who are at risk. Uh, I definitely would put my mask on. But, um, you know, I walk around New York City all the time and I do see a lot of people who just walk around from block to block with mask on. I mean, maybe it's getting <laughs> it's getting cold. So maybe that helps because, you know, it's getting cold. But fashion, it, it just looks stupid as shit to me. I, I just I can't <laughs> understand it. And I feel bad. Like I'll see it and then I'm like, oh, I don't have my mask on. I, I feel bad. This person's wearing a mask. But I think, oh, wait a minute. This person is being stupid. So yeah. then I don't feel so bad. Yeah. And here here's where I have sympathy with people is that here it was a traumatic like it was yeah, traumatic to be at the center of covid and i think people just as some people don't trust the cdc mm -hmm. because they think the cdc is going too far mm -hmm. there are other people who don't trust the cdc because they don't trust the cdc to be stringent enough yeah. and so i do have sympathy for people like i don't think that all those people wearing masks are the sanctimonious type i think some of them are elderly people or yeah. people who've just been around long enough to to know that that there could be a new variant that the CDC doesn't recognize in time and they're just really, really afraid. Mm -hmm. So I think like more humanity here, I think is in order and I think a little bit more patience. And that's where I'm thinking like, if we can just abandon seeing these things as political symbols and, mm -hmm. and respect people's positions on them and just keep each other safe and say like, look, like there's, there's, we need to abandon both extremes and say, all right, let's listen to well-meaning public health professionals, but we don't need to literally go line by line through our life and, and give ourselves a 100% score every day, but just try our best. I think we'll all be better off for it. You make some great points, and I won't burn my mask just yet. <laughs> we'll be well, because right we don't have the FDNY, by the way, so don't burn anything until they get back to work. I kind of want to see what happens. We'll be right back. <laughs> And now it's time for Chef Corey's Food for Thought. Here's your host, Chef Corey Bradford. Welcome to Chef Corey's Food for Thought, where I cook up my hot takes on what's really going on in America. Today, I want to address a topic that constantly tops the list of misunderstood political conversations, socialism. <laughs> AKA the new S word, because we all know you can say shit at like four in the afternoon on basic cable these days. Socialism, on the other hand, is still a word that evokes shock, fear, and rage, and confusion. Conservatives say it's the evil boogeyman that's gonna destroy America as we know it. Progressives say it's one of the only things that can save our republic. Chef Corey says, this is a spicy topic that's hard to digest, and most of you keep fucking up the recipe. So let's preheat this bad boy. Socialism has been on my mind lately because a self-described democratic socialist was recently on the ballot for mayor in Buffalo. But let's back up. What the hell even is socialism? Okay, can we stop? Socialism is broadly defined as a political and economic theory that argues in favor of collective or governmental ownership and administration of the means of production and the distribution of goods. Okay, whoa, sounds like the literature rich kids used to throw at me when I was hanging out at UC Berkeley. Basically, socialism, by and large, believes capitalism sucks and that the hallmarks of capitalism, such as private ownership, should be tightly regulated or even abolished altogether. Socialism is strongly associated with communism, which is when the government basically makes it where a private citizen can't own property, capital, or the means of production. But in the U.S., socialism is branded a little differently. It's kind of like socialism light. Let's call it 
diet socialism. In America, most socialists subscribe to the notion of democratic socialism. According to the Democratic Socialism of America's website, they want the people to collectively own the key economic drivers that dominate our lives, such as energy production and transportation. They also support policies like Medicare for all, free tuition at colleges, and recently defunding the police. And the policing issue isn't even a part of traditionalist socialist ideology. Socialism would require more funding for government-run departments, including the police. This brings me to my first issue with using this term. Most of the policies democratic socialists are pushing aren't even socialist. What they're pushing is more like social democracy. A lot of people on the left love to point to Norway, Denmark, and Sweden as popular examples of socialism. Absolutely false. That's a big cap. Those countries operate off the Nordic system, which means they have well-funded welfare programs that assist citizens with health care, education, and unemployment benefits, but they still have private ownership. They still have corporations and a free market. Now let's take a look at Buffalo, New York. If ever there was a city that would benefit from the progressive promises of socialism, it's Buffalo. It's one of the most segregated cities in America with fairly high crime rates and poverty rates that all stem from the lingering effects of deindustrialization. Back in September, a self-described Democratic socialist named India B. Walton ran against a longtime Democratic mayor of Buffalo, Byron Brown, and she won against him in the primaries. Walton even gained massive support from prominent Democratic figures like Representative AOC, Senator Gillibrand, and even Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Since when has Chucky Schumer been a socialist? Now, what seemed like a huge victory for Democratic Socialism in Buffalo quickly soured as the incumbent mayor, Byron Brown, refused to go out without a fight. He launched an energized write-in candidacy and was actually successful. In the general election, Brown defeated Walton, earning more than 58% of the vote. Think about it like this. The Democratic Socialist candidate lost to a candidate who wasn't even on the ballot. Instead of checking a box, people had to take the effort to write in Byron Brown's name. That's a huge rebuke of Democratic Socialism. But was Indian Walton even pitching anything that was truly socialist? She did talk about moving more than $7 million out of Buffalo's funding for the police department. But that's not the same as real socialist policies like abolishing private ownership or socializing industries. I don't think the use of this term socialism is really working for the Democratic Party. It's not winning in places like Buffalo, and the use of the term is easily weaponized by the right. Democrats lost important House seats in Florida and Texas back in 2018 because Republicans were successful at painting all Democrats as socialists. Even though people like Andrew Gillum, the Democrat who came super close to beating Governor DeSantis in Florida, wasn't even close to being a socialist. You can argue that the excessive spending of taxpayer money on social programs may be bad public policy, but that's not socialism. The government spending money on shit has nothing to do with the concept of social ownership of the means of production. There is simply a huge misunderstanding from both the right and the left on what socialism even is. And I can't stress this enough. None of you are actually talking about true socialism. Words and terms have specific meanings for a reason. And political parties should start using more specific language when talking about their policies. Because if we're not on the same page about what these terms even mean, how can we work together to get anything done? And that's Corey's food for thought. Ravi, what do you think about socialism? 
Well, I, I'm with you on why are Democrats leaning into a term that's deeply unpopular? And it's it's funny, Republicans are trying, like you said, to, to brand Democrats as this term, and then they're rushing to identify with a socialist in Buffalo. They're doing the work for the Republicans. It's weird. There's a little bit of data to suggest that this term socialism is actually really popular with like young voters, like Generation Z and some of the younger millennials, actually more or less millennials than Generation Z. So there is some evidence that calling yourself a socialist like really gets you more clicks on social media and things like that. But obviously there is a problem here. I mean, I remember back, you know, in the days when Obama was first running, you know, the Republicans used to call him a Marxist and a socialist. And that was like an insult. And, he would, right. and, and, and Democrats were like, he's not socialist. And now it just seems like they've called them that insult so much. They're like, you know what, damn it, we are socialists. And again, the stuff that they're proposing isn't even textbook socialism. Right. I'm, I'm so curious about the young people. Like, do they, the saying used to be, People are Democrats or socialists until they start making money. Yeah. Uh, and so I wonder if that will be true of this generation or are they because we've lived to this point now where inequality is so much more severe than even when we were kids. Do Does this group of kids come out and, and, and is this sort of more socialist uh, ethos among them more durable than it was for us? I suspect it'll be a little bit somewhere uh, between the two. I, I do suspect that this group of kids will emerge more skeptical of capitalism than our generation was. Yeah, unmitigated greed and unregulated capitalism has definitely led to so many young people embracing the concept of socialism. But the Democratic Party isn't even really talking about socialism. And again, just the, the semantics of this alone is just really hurting them in, when it comes to elections. All right, Corey, I think that's all we have for today. Yeah, it was a great episode. We thank you all for watching. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Make sure to also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. And we'll see you again next time.